Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Uh, my guest here is Jan Bozarth, uh, an author, producer, songwriter, and mom. Uh, she's got a long history of producing media for children uh, and most recently has created Coded for Greatness uh, that's aimed for young people uh, a little bit older than uh, sh the books she's previously written. So uh, welcome to the show. Hey, Stuart, how are you? Good. Uh, so it sounds like you know a lot about creativity. You've been creating for a while. Uh, what is your favorite thing about creativity? My favorite thing about creativity is this feeling of uh, trying to get into a zone where you're connected, not just to the work that you're doing, but to the inspiration behind the work. So um, as an example, the, the books that you mentioned in my introduction, the Fairy Godmother Academy books, which are for preteen girls, and then the subsequent series just about to come out called Coded for Greatness, are connected to the natural world. That was my inspiration. I wanted to write about kids who were very, um, had, had powers that I call codes in the story. And their powers stem from lineages, so they find out about them. Sometimes they know about them, sometimes they don't. But they find out about their power to protect some aspect of the natural world, water, trees, and as it turns out, very timely subject matter. But I started writing these books 10 years ago, so I'm um, you know, sad that we have to be in the place that we're in, but happy to see the young people of the world stepping up to the plate. Uh, that's really interesting. I go out into nature a lot. And uh, one thing I've been noticing, uh, I've been going out on these motorcycle trips where I take my motorcycle and I go out uh, alone for three to four days. Uh, and I'm noticing that it's pretty intense to go out there on my own. I didn't really realize it the first time, although at once, once night came about, I, I started to notice that, you know, I have fear coming up. Uh, but it's really interesting to go out into nature and really be immersed in nature and all sorts of weird stuff happens. And it makes me think, of, think about like um, coming of age rituals that we don't really have anymore. And it felt like, you know, here I am in this, in my early thirties and I'm finally doing this kind of thing that was pretty common for uh, people, young people to do uh, when they're really young. Um, and, I wonder where you get the inspiration for bringing nature into your into the uh, books that you're writing. Well, I um, am happy to announce and admit that I'm a little bit of a druid. <laughs> and when my kids were young, I have three sons, when they were young, uh, in addition to being involved in the church with their dad, more with their dad than me, 
um, I, my church was taking them into the woods and communing with nature and trying to get them to listen to the sounds of the forest and to really be in touch with the elements that are, were around them. And, you know, of course they thought I was a little wacky mom, mm-hmm. but, um, as it turns out, you know, that is something that I think that in this day and time kids are losing maybe the last generations that will have access. Many kids already don't have access to the natural world. But the ones that do, I think, are taught to revere it. And uh, it, you know, dates back thousands of years to the Druids and to, of course, the Native American culture and um, the indigenous people who all respected every aspect of, of nature, like it was a, you know, at least on the level of being a human. And all of that, those ideas have been lost to some extent in the modern world. And I just really felt strongly that that was a place that I could make a contribution to kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you mentioned that it, it, you kind of have to be taught when you go into nature to respect it. But I find myself, maybe I was taught when I was younger and I'm just not remembering it. But I find that once I go into nature, there is no choice. It's like as soon as you get immersed in nature, it's just like, it demands respect because uh, it's so beautiful and awe-inspiring and and bigger uh, than us and bigger than <laughs> us. Yeah, yeah. It's well, we are uh, really all a part of that, you know. And we have been, become separated from our natural uh, aliveness. And I think when you're out there by yourself, you're probably overcome emotionally. I would guess, you know, if you even identify it as that. But once you connect at that level with the natural world, it's inspiring. I mean, that's why people camp and go boating and, you know, they're trying to connect with something bigger than themselves. So if we're able to learn to do that regularly and then elicit the response or the, the, um, the respect of that power, then I think that is a really healing force for everybody. Mm. Yeah. And where you're, you're based in Austin and uh, do you, do you find yourself, is there a lot of nature around in Austin? Do you go, do you go out there? Yes. It's a very beautiful part of Texas. In fact, in my opinion, the best part, the central Texas have hills um, and waterways, lots of rivers and lakes and waterfalls and, um, migratory birds and you know lots of wildlife and people are very active outside in this this part of the world our worst possible time is now mm-hmm. <laughs> in the in the late uh, summer early fall it's really hot but other than that everybody kind of adapts and tries to do everything outside so yeah it's a great part to, a great part of the world to be in mm-hmm. what are what are the druids i don't actually know that much about them what, what is that <laughs> well they were the ancient uh, beings, people who would lived in the, in the UK in those areas, and were part of. Um, they had a, a religion of Druidism, and that is uh, really a lot of those those cultures. Uh, some of their mystical beliefs were adapted into Christianity. You know, once Christianity started to come to that part of the world. But the Druids, like um, all of the indigenous people, were so connected to the natural world. You know, that's all they knew. Of course, this is 2,000 years ago or more. So, um, but, you know, places like Stonehenge and, and some of those sacred sites in uh, the UK 
are evidence of the rituals that they did. They were connected to the um, celestial bodies, the sun and the stars. And their, some of their beliefs were, you know, uh, crude by our, you know, advanced knowledge, but also some of those rituals were embedded or rooted in, in being a human and how a human lives with the world, not, you know, in dominion over the world. So I think that, you know, in that respect, of course, I just got back from the UK and I actually went to many of those sacred sites. I did a little journey with my cousin and, um, so, so much of my writing and my influence comes from some of the stories in the ancient ways. So I did that journey for myself, really, to connect strongly. I went to uh, King Arthur's and uh, Guinevere's um, castle, Tintagel in, in Cornwall. And I went to Glastonbury, to the Abbey, and to the Well. And those places are very spiritual for me. I like to think about the ancients and how they believed when things were simpler. That's interesting. Um, I was just talking to somebody else earlier today in another interview about stories and myths and the way that it's it's almost you know it's almost evolutionarily that that they're such a high bandwidth way to communicate like instead of me just i mean you know in a sense all language is story but bringing a, a language into a, a story is just such a good way to download like a whole world view into somebody um and i feel like you would have uh insight into this scene as you as you as you write for children what are the what are the main elements i mean we've already been talking about this but what are the main themes that you find yourself trying to instill through the use of stories? Well, back to the UK for a minute. Um, my original reason for writing the Fairy Godmother Academy, which I started writing in 2006, was uh, I had become sort of an Arthurian legend expert in my own way. I read every single thing that uh, had ever been written, both the legends and the facts, the historical facts. And I always wondered why there wasn't a story like that for girls. There was Arthur and Merlin, and Merlin being the magical teacher, and then there were all these other sort of extraneous women, but it wasn't really a girl's story. And so I wanted to write a story like that for girls, where the main character was a girl seeking you know, strength and power and knowledge. And the teacher, the, the wise one, the magical one was also a woman. So I started writing from that place. And that was my inspiration. But of course, it, it kind of got blown out in a variety of ways as I went along, because there's six books in that series. And I wanted it also to be global. So, you know, what are the common denominators between all girls of all cultures around the world? And, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, simple in many ways to identify those things. And it's, it's still true. It's true of girls now and girls when I was a girl. Um, but I tried to incorporate all that to make it personal and immediate, but also have this sort of underlying current of the ancient of being trained in some way to like Merlin um, Arthur when he was young, being trained in a way that you can defend yourself and at the same time love. 
And I think that that's my main theme over the course of all of my books is to try to find a way to be both strong and soft at the same time. Very interesting. Um, you mentioned some, I, I can't remember the word, but the themes that are common to girls from all around the world. Uh, could you go more into that? Sure. So um, backing up ever so slightly, I did about 10 years creating games for girls. And one of my big clients was Mattel, the toy company. So I did a lot of work for Barbie, the doll. Mm -hmm. And in the course of all that work and creating the first games the first computer games that came out for girls in the late 90s and early 2000s, I had to be very adept at the um, play patterns of young girls. So, you know, I did a lot of research. We had a National Science Foundation grant. Um, Girl Games was the first company I worked for. I was the head of creative for that. Uh, we had a National Science Foundation grant to study the way girls use computers. And um, so within the scope of all the research to create these games and to understand how girls use computers or acquired knowledge or shared knowledge, you know, really what bubbled up to the top and continues to do so are these, these two or three things that are consistent. One is that girls are typically sharing. They're, they're more about um, sharing knowledge and uh, acquiring knowledge through the group. And so it makes them good, you know, team players. Another is a girl, the girl's desire for, and I'm going to call this beauty, but it's not just beauty. So girls are developing without culture at all. If we never had any pictures on the internet or shows or magazine articles that told us how to look, we still inherently want to present as the best we can be. So the beauty and the uh, trying on different ways of looking and being in the world that comes out in the current world as fashion or makeup, those things are very ancient. I mean, you can see a lot of the representations of that in, in ancient Egyptians. So I think those things are very common today. I mean, the, the, other, the other things that have been squelched over the years and now are coming up in a big way are how a female acquires power in the world. And physical power, physical prowess, how we, you know, how strong are we? How can we, you know, fight off a saber-toothed tiger if we need to? So those things are still in us. And then culturally, some of those things have been held back. So, you know, I try to let the girls in my stories or the girls in my stories are the heroines. They are, they don't wait for the prince to save them. They are doing the adventure, wielding the sword, making the decisions, and they are strong. And so I think that's, you know, that's been a, a real um, exciting thing to write about is to envision flipping the equation that way. And how, where, where have your books most been, where have they been sold most uh, in the U S and the UK? The, well, all around the world, so English speaking countries at this uh -huh. point, um, Australia and um, uh, Canada as well. And um, because the Fairy Godmother Academy are the age range is seven to 12. I did quite a few um, school shows, you know, speeches, uh, presentations 
and then all the comic cons and fairy cons if you, i bet you didn't know there were fairy cons right <laughs> there are giant things like comic con but they're all about fairy lore uh, mine is a modern fairy tale though and there are people in the fantasy world of the of this storyline that are called the Farren, and so they're fairy-like although they're not traditional fairy tale fairy fairies um but I landed in fairy cons quite often and I've been around the world really speaking and talking about various aspects of it. And interestingly, even though the books were directed at girls and the, the heroes in the stories are all girls, um, there are boy characters and boys like the story. So there are, you know, what I tried to do with the new books now in the new series is one, I aged them up a bit. So they're for Gen Z either. So, eight to 20 and there are strong male and female characters and all kinds of, uh, of um, genders in between that are not necessarily male or female and because some of them are not human. So it's, it's really an exciting way to look at the characters. Now I push the age and the time frame up. Mm. So it's a little bit in the future now, not a dystopian future, but a future where, the kids who have the powers and understand and train to have those powers and use them, use them for good in the world. They're still trying to save the natural world in this series as well. Mm. And it's so interesting. I don't really have a fully defined question in my, in my, in my head, but I want to go take this down the path of kind of like, I talk a lot on the show about how we're entering kind of a new stage of cultural development which is very global in its outreach uh, that crosses uh, national borders may not cross linguistic borders yet but probably will soon um, and and it seems like you'd have something interesting to say about this kind of this this global spreading of culture mediated through media I guess uh, through books through television through all these different things what what is your take on this on this global expansion of, of culture that we've been, particularly in the last 10 to 20 years, uh, have really seen uh, adopted by the internet? Well, first of all, I will say that I was brought up in a, an international household. My mother was Cuban and my father was an international businessman, so he traveled the world. So we were exposed at an early age to other cultures. And um, my mom was, uh, very adamant that we learned about our Hispanic culture. So, you know, I was predisposed to think of the world as one big place with no borders. Of course, now with the internet and with technology and media crossing borders, dissolving borders, I couldn't think of it any other way. Like to create something now that is so hyper uh, focused on our our singular way of looking at the world seemed like it was not right. So, I mean, just for me, I'm not saying no one should do that, but for my purposes and the way I think, I was already there. And so what I think about it is that it's a good thing. And I also think it's a thing that we can't, it's not like you can stop the flow of the river, right? This is what is happening, has happened. And with kids around the world talking to each other and knowing what everybody's doing, knowing, knowing how each other lives and being able to observe, they can make their own decisions about what is best about the future world. It doesn't have to go the way that it had to go before. So I guess you could say that was a, 
you know, uh, strike against nationalism. Mm -hmm. I am a person of the global universe, and I write for that. And that's uh, really interesting. So uh, one thing I want to take out of there is that in the 1950s, 1960s, well, even back in the 1920s, we had radio, uh, and then we had TV, and these were one-to-many type of broadcast mediums where we kind of where the the powers at large broadcast their their message to everybody and everybody kind of just imbibes it uh and now with the internet we have a lot of lot of like uh many to many so i can i can mold culture uh you know with this podcast and then and then people listening to the podcast can find me on twitter and then i can uh, talk with them that way and then you know so it's like this co-creation type of thing uh and I, you know, and and I, I think we got connected because of um, my uh, step stepmother, of, of Valerie Grisson, uh, or maybe my dad connected us. But um, but I know that Valerie is doing this thing called "Give Us the Floor," which connects a lot of teenagers together um, and allows them to kind of create culture around the around the world. Uh, I wonder, with your books, are you doing anything like that? Are the people who are uh, paying attention to it or reading it, are they? Are, are you going to connect them at all? Yes, and that's built into the DNA of all of this this franchise. Um, in the younger books, the Fairy Godmother Academy books. In fact, I met your stepmother Valerie, Valerie Grusson Alsop to uh, doing a project with her when she first started her nonprofit for teens. We did a, a joint project together talking about beauty. And, you know, how girls perceive themselves and what, you know, how to sort of change up our perception of beauty. So, yes, I mean, it's you can't really do any kind of project anymore without having a, a sort of a community based and or an activism based element to it. So for for Fairy Godmother Academy and then uh, moving into the Coded for Greatness books, my main focus is on activism um, that focuses on trees, seeds, and water. So I sort of boil down the um, the activities around the um, the natural world into those three categories for now. I mean, there's some some things about animals and relationships in different books, but I really wanted to focus those activism um, plays on um, on the trees and the water mainly. Hmm. And so are you, are you kind of organizing uh, teenagers around planting trees or? Um... Yes, I'll have um, what I call wisdom acts and mm. they are global activities that use their, their inner wisdom. And um, our first big event for a wisdom act will be trying to plant a million trees. Mm. And um, we haven't actually gotten that off the ground yet. That's, you know, that's been in, you know, in development. So, but that's the intention. And, you know, my, my goal is to use the creative work to mobilize a, a great group of girls around the world, and then they can begin to activate in their own ways as well. That's really cool. Um, Let's go into the beauty aspect. What, from those discussions about what is beauty among among teens, what was the main thing that was gotten out of that? Well, the the um, the intention was, and it was born out of one of the stories 
was to reframe what we think of as our beauty so that you're really um you're really accessing your inner beauty first and so that would involve um your your sense of self and your belief in yourself and your qualities whether they be traditional beauty qualities or non-traditional and i think there's a huge movement for that already when valerie and i did that project it's been about five years ago um you know it really was a conversation it was just at the beginning of the conversation i think dove had done some of their campaigns um but now that's that's gotten some steam and we do see a lot of movement around the idea of inner beauty so really just in just the general vibe of my stories is about taking the focus off the exterior the outside world and putting the focus on the inside world of yourself and developing your skills and your talents and your your gifts and then being in service to the world in some way so inner beauty was a big one we felt like that was something to be explored and a lot of course the kids are already there you know most of the time they're ahead of us it's just how do you gather these kids together to talk about and then become active in a certain way yeah it's something i've, I've find really interesting in my learnings about um about the brain and how it works and uh, there's this great book called behave uh, by robert sapolsky all about the neurobiology of behavior and uh, he talks about the amygdala, the amygdala, the fear center of our brain, the, uh, the thing that modulates aggression and, um, and fear. Uh, and, and we have an inner amygdala and then we have an outer amygdala. Uh, and the inner amygdala comes with some sort of pre-programmed uh, fears that we, a lot of people share. Uh, and then the outer amygdala, uh, basolateral amygdala, actually learns fear over time. And so we as young kids have to actively learn how to distrust and to be fearful of certain things. Uh, and that's why, you know, it's, that's why parents play such a pivotal role in, in the development of children is so that they can kind of like guide them and be like, well, you should, you should probably be afraid of this, or you should probably be, um, you know, you, you need to learn how to trust the right people as opposed to everyone. Um, and it, so it seems like kids have this kind of like way of being that is uh, much more, inwardly focused although even even the word inwardly focused kind of um they're just they're just natural they have this natural naivete which is beautiful in a lot of ways um but over time we've we become jaded and then it's always interesting to me as to how how jaded we must we be can like you were saying can we be strong yet open at the same time um i don't know if you have anything to add to that I do. I, I have a lot to add to that. Well, first of all, I think that we evolve or we have evolved sometimes ever so slightly, not enough, but we, our brains have evolved. I'm involved in reading a book now called The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist. And I like to study because of my work in, create, in the creative world. I am always trying to find the latest thought on uh, the left and right brain. Mm and how that actually, whatever the new science is around that. And um, so back to what you were saying though about the parents handing down the fears, the in, in 
the embedded fears of past, I, I think that, you know, my belief is that that's the genetic memory. And some of those fears are unfounded in the, in the modern world mm -hmm. because we have evolved. So if you're afraid of being attacked by a saber-toothed tiger in this day and age, that's unfounded fear. So it can come out as, as um, sort of an unnamed fear. But I think that really what, what I'm trying to figure out now is uh, with regard to brain science is how to stay creative. You know, the first question you asked me on this interview was, you know, what, what do I like about creativity? I do a lot of dream work. I have all my life. I've been a, a lucid dreamer. I'm extremely intuitive. Like everybody else in this culture, I was trained out of my intuition but I resisted and I still now use it even more than ever. But I really do use my dream work um, for my creative work. It's a, an unfettered world that is not um, controlled by anyone but me. <laughs> I am able to do problem solving and come up with creative ideas. I've written songs in my dreams. Um, the, real, the real hardship is to learn how to bring forward things from your dream life into your real life. So I'm always trying to figure out how the brain works and what, what part of our brain is dreaming and you know what part of our brain controls the really original ideas mm. and the original thought process that are not controlled by other people. And, and past experiences. So um, that that's a very big area of study for me ongoing. Mm. And I do also, uh, at some point, when I have a break from writing my new books that, for the kids, I have started a book on lucid dreaming. Mm. And I do workshops on using your dream work to um, improve your life and find your your most, your most cherished dream and then execute on that dream. So I think it's, it's a field it's coming, you know, it was sort of left to uh, ancients and native cultures to talk about dreams. The Iroquois were big dreamers. Um, so I'm bringing that forward in my own way and using it in my work as well. That's really interesting. Uh, for me personally, it's been very interesting with my dreams because for a long time, I didn't remember my dreams. I'd wake up and I wouldn't remember them. Uh, and then I would start writing them down. And and now it's like variable, like about two or three times a week, I will remember my dreams. Sometimes I'll be going through my day and then I'll have just like all of a sudden like a flashback to a dream and then I'll remember it crystal clear. Uh, but I, it's unavailable to me at all the other times. And lucid dreaming, I had one lucid dream when I was when I was like 13 years old, and it was great, um, but I've never been able to do it again. And I, I wonder, ah. yeah, what are your thoughts on somebody who, have you worked with people who, ha, ha, who have a very difficult time remembering their dreams or working with their dreams? Yes, lots of them, and mm. I love that work. Um, okay, so, you know, the Jungians, Carl Jung had a whole... Um, area of work in dreams, of course, and he studied a tribe um, called the Sonoy tribe. And there is a thing called the Jungian Sonoy Dream Work Manual. Um, I just stumbled upon Jung and his belief about dreams when I was, you know, like 20 or 30 years ago. And I studied as much as I could in that respect. Uh, then I studied uh, an Iroquois ancient method. And I think what I've come to now, since I've always been a lucid dreamer, I could go in and out of dreams at will. I could actually accomplish things that I set out to do in, 
in my waking time in my dreams. And so that's, that's the ultimate goal, goal of lucid dreaming. Um, it's ne not necessarily my goal to teach people to lucid dreams. That is my, put it together as a, it, just, it lives right now. The beginning of that lives on my site, dreameroo.com. It's D-R-E-A-M-E-R-O-O, dreameroo.com. And there's a chapter of the book, uh, the 30 days to dream. So it's a practice like a meditation practice. And there's a whole set of things that I lay out that you should do to set yourself up, set your life up to be able to remember your dreams. And some of them are really quite simple. One of them is just, you have to write things down because you have a personal dream language. And the way that you <clears throat> identify that language is by writing out these crazy dreams for quite some time and then you begin to see the patterns. So it really is about just establishing a, an environment where you can do that. So I believe that you can, um, that what you do is that you'd have two dream journals. You have one that you keep at night for your night dreams and one that's your day journal. And I like to say, you know, the daydreams are as important as the, as the night dreams, but people still frown on just staring into space. I don't know what's wrong with them, <laughs> but the night dream journal you would keep next to your bed, always have a pencil or a recorder, some way that you can capture that dream and that space between waking and, and sleeping. When you're first coming out of the dream, you're still in your bed, your feet should never hit the floor before you've written down the dream or you'll forget it. And then like you said earlier, maybe you'll remember some little piece of it during the day, you'll have a flash of it, you know. The really strong dreams that you will capture that way, that you write in your night journal, um, over time you'll begin to see the patterns in your language and the symbols in your dreams. And those are your symbols, they're unique to you. So no one can really tell you what your dreams mean until you start to identify your, identify your own unique dream language. That's a simple thing anybody can do. I mean, just, you know, get a, a spiral notebook and a, a pen and put it next to your bed. I like to have a little hand recorder, um, mainly because for me, I dream music. And sometimes I'll wake up and sing into that recorder and just capture this sleepy singing voice, you know, and, and get the tune maybe or some words or something. And that's a little harder to bring forward into the waking, waking space. But the words, uh, I'm just actually incredibly amused by some of the, the extensive detail in some of my dreams. It's like the stories, right? Those stories were starting to come to me in my dreams before they were ever here as a profession. So, yeah, I mean, I can teach you how to do that. And you can practice it and then you'll get good at it like mm -hmm. everything else. And then for somebody who hasn't, doesn't remember their dreams uh, and then you teach them how to remember their dreams, how does that enhance or uh, make their creativity more present? I think it's huge. Mm -hmm. I think that you are, uh, you know, you're get, I don't want to get too deep into the brain science because mm -hmm. I am not a scientist. I have read extensively, but um, one of the things that's starting to show up right now and it's being talked about extensively in our in our culture, in our work culture, is the idea of space, you know, that we don't have enough space. Our life is cluttered. Our minds are cluttered. So one of the reasons that you dream, at, you can dream at night the way you do if you dream, 
is because there's space for the brain to rest and to sort and to make you know room for more synapses and and all of the uh, biological functions of the brain can happen but you know another part of that is that you really can problem solve so let's say you were in a brainstorming meeting in your company the day before and you were just you know stuck you didn't you couldn't come up with anything new you couldn't come up with anything at all and so what could happen is that you go to sleep that night and then somehow you have either symbolically or literally mm -hmm. a dream about what to do about that that to solve that or to a solution for whatever problem that you're trying to solve and so i think that's one really fast down and dirty thing that can happen and make you more creative or at least appear creative and the other thing i want to say about creativity is that creativity um in general as a as a skill got wrangled by artists but people and people are very shy if they're not artists to say they're creative but we're obviously finding out that creativity spans all uh, kinds of things you can be a creative business person you can be a creative uh, you know engineer you can be a creative cook there's so many ways that creativity affects our lives across the board so I don't like to just harness it and say you're going to be more creative and you're going to go paint a masterpiece or, or play guitar better, piano better. I like to say that you will become clearer in your daily life and you'll be able to solve problem solve more quickly. And this is, this is a form of creativity that you can pretty much count on if you're, if you're clearing out your head at night and you're having a space for your dreams. Yeah. And that's something I, I find myself saying a lot on the show is because I started off with the theme of creativity and stress and what the relationship is between creativity and stress. And I would talk to all these people and they'd be like, oh, I'm not creative. Uh, but yeah, no, there's so many different levels of creativity and one which includes that artistic sense of creativity. Uh, but yeah, and then there's a very, very basic creativity, which is that, um, uh, and it's a common to all human beings in, in the sense that our, our, the way that we perceive reality is a creation of the brain uh, that stabilizes and places something that's nonlinear, reality being nonlinear, and makes it linear um, using using uh, basically you know a, a ten to one ratio of our of our of our visual neurons in order to translate the images we're seeing um, into our brain. We have to dumb it down basically and make it into this linear thing. And when we walk, you know, like our whole body's moving. And our, our eyes are actually stabilizing the picture so that it appears that even though we're moving, the rest of the world is st st stable, although it is moving because we're moving. Um, and uh, yeah, and so that just just at the very basic sense, we're, we're creating thoughts, we're creating um, uh, fears. And, and in many ways, this is like, it's almost limitless, our creativity uh, in just this very basic sense. It is limitless. We're creating cells we're creating oxygen yeah. carbon dioxide we're yeah. creating just by being here we're creating so we are creative creatures and so what um is your intention with with regard to that creativity that's coming out of you once you clear up a lot of the the messiness inside mm. your head 
And I think that that is unique to each individual. I wouldn't propose to say that you're going to be a concert pianist at the end of this, but I would say you're probably going to be happier and more alive. It would be the same feeling you had when you go out into the forest by yourself on your bike and you're standing there by yourself and you feel connected to, to all living things. Mm. And so once you're, you unleash and unharness your creativity you kind of get that feeling too. It's very um, much a, a visceral feeling. And so you can decide then intellectually, what do I want to do with this? So, and it may be, it may surprise you. There may be something in there that you never thought of before that comes in the form of a, a symbol of some sort. Hmm. Do, you ever ask, huh? do you ever ask questions? Like, do you ever, do you ever go to sleep and be like, I'd like to dream an answer to this question. Do you ever use, is that possible? Yes. Mm -hmm. And um, at the very beginning of trying to become a lucid dreamer, when I didn't know what that was, I was probably 12. I, I asked, I wanted this boyfriend. Mm -hmm. I just literally my first kiss, my first boyfriend. Mm -hmm. I don't know what a boyfriend was at that (laughs) point, but I figured I wanted it. So I dreamed, I, I I made myself go into a dream and dream that he was my boyfriend so, I mean, you know, you can do something simple like that, that's silly. And it's just, you know, at the time it was huge, but of course now I know it's silly. Yeah. But also I think um, with one of my union people, I had a had an experience I'm going to share on your show. This is the first time I've shared this publicly. I tell people that really know me well, I tell the story, but I am not ashamed. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell it now because mm-hmm. it answers your question. Um, I had a a recurring nightmare as a child for many, many years into my forties. I was having this dream sometimes more often, sometimes less, you know, years would go by, but it was essentially the same dream every time. And it was a black Panther would be chasing me through city or through the neighborhood or somewhere. And right at the moment where that black Panther would get up to me, I couldn't run fast enough to get away. Right. As he was about to eat me, I would levitate vertically just above the jaws and the claws of the panther. And I could feel the energy that it took. When I woke up from the dream, I could feel that how incredibly exhausting it was Mm. to stay just out of the jaws of the panther. So I started to have that dream again in my 40s, and I was seeing a Jungian therapist. And I said, well, so what, what does this mean? You know, why have I had this dream my whole life? And she said, um, and this is very union. She said, well, I don't know, you know, all those, those in the union way, all of those characters in the dream are parts of you, Mm -hmm. but this is what you do as a lucid dreamer. Next time you have that dream, right when the Panther gets right up to you and about to eat you, instead of levitating, you just turn and face the Panther and you ask it what it wants. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, you're going to figure out the dream. So lo and behold, I don't know how long it took, but I had the dream and I did that. And what happened next was so amazing to me. I turned and faced the panther and asked it what it wanted. And it looked at me and it said, I just want to know you. Mm. And then I turned into the panther in the dream. And I'm walking the streets of New York and I'm sleek and I'm black and I'm strong. And all the people are looking down at me going, whoa, what's this panther doing in the streets of New York? So it was really kind of a funny ending, but it was also a feeling. Mm. And I think that that's the thing about our dreams. It's not just the imagery the symbols that come out in the dream or the words that are spoken it's the way it felt and it was a way for me to empower myself 
I was this strong, beautiful creature that was running from myself. And in the dream, I learned to face that and to acknowledge it and to own it. And so that's the kind of work I, I mean, that's a big one, of course. That's not, there are smaller things that does not happen every day or every night. But those are the kinds of things that you can learn from, from dreams. I've also had dreams that were just um, silly, weird, you know, of symbols and images, and they don't seem to make any sense. And then often what will happen is that that thing will show up in my world soon after that. Mm. I call those prophetic dreams. I don't dream of, you know, big things. I dream of little things, pieces of art or meeting a certain kind of person. So, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to retrieve information from that dream space and, um, and make that work for you. That was really uh, uh, powerful for me listening to the, uh, turning the question around and asking, what do you want? Because that's something that I've been working with in terms of negative or actually even positive mental states or, or, or pain sometimes is, is, is being in, stuck in this spiral of suffering and then asking, well, what is it that you want? Like, what is it, what is it that this, this feeling wants out of me? Uh, and usually, usually I'll just, I'll just kind of resist the suffering and be like, I don't want this, get, get away. But if, right. I can, if I can sit with it and be like, well, you're here for a reason, what do you want? Usually that's the, that there's a valuable lesson in there. Um, and that's, that's been an extremely helpful thing. So that was really cool to hear about uh, in dreaming. Well, that's good. I'm glad. And, you know, I find the question, what do you want to be one of the hardest questions to ask any human? Mm. Uh, years ago, I used to um, assist entrepreneurs to write their business plans and this has been before I was entrepreneurial myself I just had a skill set that I was assisting people and those entrepreneurs invariably would come with these you know Harvard level business plans you know spreadsheets or whatever mm -hmm. and um, and at the end of the first session <laughs> the question that I would have to send them away with it would be so that's all fine and good what you showed me but what do you want out of this and you have no idea how hard that was people could not answer that question but my 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 belief was unless you can answer that question you don't need to start this business mm -hmm. because you really don't know where you're going until you know what you want it is the intentional life that we're seeking, not the one that we just like fall into accidentally and keep doing the same mistakes over and over again. And in that, in fact, keep doing our parents' same mistakes over and over again. Mm -hmm. So if you can get into a dream world situation in your own mind and you can come up with the answer to that question, that would be a grand achievement for you. And that's, and yeah, and I was, I was actually talking about asking the specific emotion, what it wants, but then it's funny because I, last week I had a pretty uh, powerful uh, podcast episode I did with somebody where that was, that was the question kept on asking me, what, what do I want? Uh, and it's very difficult. And of, oftentimes, um, oftentimes I find that when I ask myself big questions like that, usually the, the intellectual answer isn't necessarily the right one. Usually it comes out in an act or throughout my life. So I'll ask myself a big question like that. I still haven't figured out the question. What do I want? But, uh, but it's, uh, but I'm continuously asking myself over the past week, like, what, what do I want? Um, and then also another one is like, how am I lying to myself about what I want? Um, or how am I lying to myself in general? Um, but, uh, yeah, I find it, it, but the intellectual answer is, is usually the one it's just like a superficial answer that might not even get to it. What do you think about that? 
Well, your intellect is protecting your emotional being. Mm. And so I, you know, I'm not a therapist and uh, I feel like, you know, what I call to say to you is that you're trying to make an emotional connection. You're trying to find the emotional answer to that question, not necessarily the intellectual answer to the question, which is our culture. We're trained from an early age to, you know, have the right answer. The right answer is to go to college and become a doctor or a lawyer and, you know, whatever that, that package is. And I propose that this next uh, period of time, it is more important to be in touch with the emotional truth because it's from that place that everything new and good comes. And you can then apply the intellectual, but you know, right now you've got, um, you've got a gatekeeper mm. and that gate gatekeeper is your mind that has been trained mm. to have all the right answers, but you don't know what the real answer is yet because, and that's another thing that happens in dream time. If you really get to where you are adept at being quiet in a meditative state and allowing the space you're going to get down to it. I found that recently in the last few years, um, I have begun to lose my filter, yeah. <laughs> my heart filter, the intellectual protectionary device, the shield that I wore over my heart for many years to mm. survive. I've, um, I've lost that. It's dissipated, fallen away. And if something is true to me, or someone says something or I see something and it feels true to me, I immediately well up in tears. There's no, I have no protection from the, the thing that is attached to my heart. It mm -hmm. just happens. And at first I was embarrassed by that. I was like, God, I'm crying so much. You know, why am I doing this? I'm so emotional. And um, then I realized that that was the greatest gift that I am connected at the heart. Now I don't have that suit of armor anymore. And it's been a really great thing. So I, I don't know you very well. I know your family, but I don't know you very well. But I would propose by what you said that maybe that's where you might find the answer to that question. Yeah, that's interesting because that's uh, I've been having these experiences because I definitely did. There, uh, you know, I still have a moment in my in my childhood where I blocked off that heart uh, access uh, due to you know painful painful situation. And then over the past year or so, I've started to, uh, it's, it's come in the form of a panic attack uh, uh, where I'll start, it's like a momentary experience of something going on in the heart. And, the, and it's interesting because I've I ju just yesterday, I put it together that it's connected with this term in the uh, yoga, yogic uh, uh, tradition called spanda. Uh, which is this uh, expansion and contraction feeling where you get expanded and then you go contracted and expanded and it's the oscillating um, between expansion and contraction. And I just, and it, and it emanates from the heart. Uh, and it's the same reason that we can basically call anxiety is the same energy as excitement. They're just, it's just a different label that we put to it. Um, and it's all that kind of heart energy that just kind of like is expansive and then contracted expansion. And it's like, and that's, you know, that's the, contracting at the same time mm, is the goal. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I think really you're, you're headed down that path, it seems. And maybe some of these, these types of things like dreaming, lucid dreaming, and really being intentional about uh, finding that space inside yourself that's quiet 
and that where you can find those answers. I think that sounds like it could be your next, mm. your next Holy grail. Mm. Cool. Well, awesome. This has been really fun. Um, and I want to, uh, hear more about how, how I can find out more about, about, um, uh, the books you're writing and, and how my audience can connect with you if, if they've enjoyed what, what we've been talking about. Yes. Well, I will give you some links, um, after we hang up that we, you can put in the notes, but just, um, the short version of that is that my new books, um, which are coded for greatness, the first of the new series. I'm currently in pre-release and I'm doing an offering of a free download of the ebook. It's like an e-advanced reader copy of the book. And they can find that at helloaventuring.com. It's H-E-L-L-O-A-V-E-N T U R I N E Aventuring. No, no D in the word. It's A V E R. Ian, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to give it to you for the notes. Eventually, sure. um, that is all you have to do is sign up and you get a link and you download the book and it's free. And so, you know, if you like that sort of book or you have young uh, teenagers in your house that might want to read it, I'd love to have them come and get the free book. Cool. Awesome. Well, yeah, it's been, it's been great, great, uh, great chatting with you. Anything else you want to leave with the audience before, before we sign off? No, this is exciting. Thank you for asking me to do it. And I love the conversation with you about lucid dreaming and finding your heart. And um, I wish you all the luck for doing that. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you soon. Shall I send you? Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next 100 years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks, have a great day.